You guys have mirrors? Of course you do. Um, I'm liking mirrors less and less. I had surgery on my arm about seven, on my shoulder about seven weeks ago, and your body just changes in not ways that I like. So about three and a half weeks into the surgery, I had surgery, my wife is having to help me like put shirts on and off because it was really difficult, really stiff. So she's helped me take my shirt off. And she, I took my shirt off, got it off with her help. And I'm standing there waiting for the new shirt. And she looks at my arm and this is what she said. And I quote, wow, your arm is tiny. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't give you the excuse to stare at my arm, okay? Look at this one. Yeah, right there. <laughs> then, maybe two days later, I'm outside, had my sling on, have a fitted shirt on. She comes over. She looks at my stomach. She pats it. She says, wow, I am taking good care of you. I was like, it's the woman you've given to me. <laughs> the problem is, she's right. That's the problem. That mirrors sometimes, they're right. And we don't always like what they show. We're in a part of Nehemiah where the rebuilding physically of the wall and rebuilding of the gates and the renewing of that infrastructure and the standard operating procedures and how to use stuff has all been put in, into place. And there's been a shift now from the physical to the spiritual that the people, they need to be renewed. So last week we saw in chapter eight, maybe the first corporate worship service to Yahweh in 141 years in Jerusalem. Brilliant. That the people, as good as infrastructure is, that the people, they need to be revived. You know what we need in America? We need revival. Elections are great and Tuesday was great and please, you know, cast your ballots and do all that stuff. But you know what we really need? Is people to bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we actually need, right? And that's the rest of Nehemiah. The rest of Nehemiah is, hey, let's get the people revived and renewed so that they can dwell in a good city. So chapter eight, brilliant. Chapter nine is a mirror of God's word. A retelling of what God had done and how God had been for them. Just a retelling of it. And what they see, the reflection is two things. It's both gross and it's glorious. They see themselves, don't like what they see, but there's an image of our heavenly father that is brilliant and beautiful. And it's amazing. Check it out. Chapter nine, verse one. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Number one, here's what you see. The people get serious. Sackcloth is not a fashion statement. 
It's not like mom jeans or something. It was these burlap sacks that were used to carry cow manure or dirt or rocks or garbage that then they put a hole in them and wore them. Itchy, scratchy, nasty. It was a body posture that said this, we are not comfortable where we are at right now. The position of our souls, where our lives have gone, we're not comfortable in that and we're showing that physically. And they fasted as well. Same idea. And Jesus said this to believers. He said, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, don't fast like these guys who do it for a show, fast for a different reason. When you fast, okay? Brilliant. It's demonstrating we're not happy with where we're at right now. And then the second thing they did is it says they separated themselves from the foreigners. It's 1 Corinthians 15.33. Bad company corrupts good morals. I tell young people this all the time. I don't have to be a prophet to tell you where you will be in one year. I just need to look at your five best friends because you're going to be doing what they're doing. That's what you got. We need a crew. We've got to have friends, totally. But the friends that you choose to be, they're going to steer you in a certain direction. If all your buddies are fools and they trash talk and they party and they're in a casual sex and they're smoking pot and they're playing video games and watching their phones all the time, I call those guys idiots, then guess what you're going to be? A idiot. That's what you're going to be because that's the direction you go. Matt, it's a mission field for me. Okay. Is it? Here's how you know if it's a mission field. Are you a thermometer or a thermostat when you're with your friends? Thermometers just go to the temperature of the room. Whatever they're doing, you're doing. Well, I guess my buddies are doing it, so I'm doing it. I don't want to be awkward. I don't want to be weird. So, all right, let's do it. Thermostat set the temperature of the room. Don't talk that way about her. Don't say that garbage. We're not doing that. That's a thermostat. Which are you? Missionaries are thermostats. They set the temperature of the room. This group of people at this time realized we have 141 years of bad. We're not strong enough. We're not missionaries. We got one choice right now. Until we get strong enough, until our hearts get right, we got to separate ourselves from these people so that we don't do the same things that they've done. So they get serious, number one. Number two, check out their change in appetite, verse three. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped Yahweh, their God. This people, they have a brand new appetite. If you were here last week, here's what happened in chapter eight. Ezra stands up and preaches a six-hour sermon. Probably 613 points. Massive. After that, all the men get together. They study the Bible. They realize, hey, the Bible commands us to do this seven-day camp out. And they have a seven-day Bible camp where they study the Bible for seven days. Chapter 9, they get together. They have either a three-hour or a six-hour Bible study. 
crazy, right? What's happening to them? Their appetite for God's word is changing. You will desire what you do. You know that? Whatever I start to do, whatever I start to engage in, the more I engage in it, the more I get an appetite for it. So if tonight I'm at my house and I go to the fridge at about eight o'clock and pull out of the freezer a half gallon of Breyer's natural vanilla, God's gift to humanity, and I scoop out a big bowl of it and I just woof it down. Monday at about eight o'clock at night, guess what happens to me? Man, I want another bowl. Right, what, I just trained myself because what I do, I will desire. It's a gift from God and it's a curse as well. The things that I begin to do and engage my life in become the things that I want to do and I engage my life in. I think it's why our culture is actually trying to corrupt kids younger and younger and younger because they know if we can corrupt you younger and younger, get you to do these things, then you're gonna desire worse and worse and worse and it's gonna become worse and worse and viler and viler. This group of people, they started with a six-hour sermon. They didn't get enough of it. They started studying the Bible. They found something, went to a seven-day Bible camp, and now here they are with a six- or three-hour Bible study. Love that. Love it. And this is what happens in their heart as they study God's Word. Their souls are discomforted because of sackcloth. They separate themselves from uncleanliness. They're studying the Word, and then they begin to pray. They pray. Do you know anyone that prays too long? I don't know anyone like that. Maybe my nephews do, because many Thanksgivings ago, uh, there was a bunch of us at our house, and I was elected to pray over the meal. And my six-year-old nephew, this is what he said, and I quote, oh, Uncle Matt, try to keep it short. <laughs> I want to eat. These guys don't try to keep it short. This is the longest recorded prayer in scripture. It is brilliant. It's incredible. Check it out, verse six. You are Yahweh, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You're Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before you so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night 
to light for them the way in which they should go. They came down on Mount Sinai, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Notice what every sentence begins with in this prayer. You, God. You, God. They begin the longest prayer in Scripture with remembering who they're talking to. I think one of the keys to good praying is the very first thing is you remember who you are talking to. Have you ever said something stupid because you didn't know who you were talking to? Man, I hid my assets this year from the IRS. It's a new IRS agent. Oh, that's a bummer, right? Meet somebody at the park talking to them about your sin and cussing away. Oh, it's the pastor's wife. Oh, that's a bummer. Text somebody, man, I hate Bill. You get a text back, this is Bill. Ah, oh, that's a bummer, right? <laughs> it's important to begin with who you're talking with. You wanna get your head straight when you're praying by remembering God. If you are a prayer, this week, just check out this prayer. Even if you're not a prayer, if you have a pulse, check out this prayer this week. It is brilliant. God, you are a creator. You are the chooser. You're the seer, you're the provider, you're the sustainer, you're the instructor, you're the faithful one. Just attribute after attribute of God, getting their heads straight. I'm just gonna choose one. It's the one that they begin their prayer with. It's this, God, your creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe Genesis 1-1, is anything hard for God then? That God speaks and everything that we see comes into existence, right? Genesis 1-1, if you just get that, oh, you've got it. Abraham was held up in the New Testament as the father of faith. A promise is made to Abraham when he is 99 years old and his wife is 90 years old, who's been barren. And Abraham is told, hey, buddy, you and Sarah, 99 and 90, you're gonna have a son. How crazy is that? It means Abraham is chasing around the little rascal with his walker, <laughs> right? Sarah is the only one that goes to Walmart and buys diapers and depends, <laughs> right? It means they all eat the same food, strained vegetables, because they don't have a tooth among them, right? How crazy is that? Well, here's what the Bible says. Paul picks it up and he says, here's what happened when that promise was given to Abraham. Here's what through his mind. Two things that are really important of, for people of faith. Check this out. First one, Romans 4.19. Abraham's told this. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. I love that. How honest is scripture? Bro, you're dead. I'm not dead yet. Yes, you are. You're good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. They'd been trying to have a kid for probably 70 years. Hadn't happened. Month after month, year after year, decade after decade, God makes a promise. And what does Abraham say? Awesome. No excuses. Doesn't consider himself. I can't tell you how many times I've been helping somebody walk through difficulty, something that's happening in their life. And I'll read for them a Bible promise or tell them a Bible story or show them what Jesus did. And the first words out of their mouth are, that won't work for me. Yeah, that won't work in my marriage. That'll never work in my marriage. Okay, then it won't. That won't help my temper, it's too bad. Yeah, it won't then. That my addiction's too strong, can't work for me. Wounds are too deep, I can't forgive like that. Okay, you can't then. The key is not considering yourself, right? The reason why we begin with praise of God is so that it puts our problems in the right perspective, right? Because that's point number two. Look what he said in verse 17. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What's that right there? That's Genesis chapter one. When this promise is made to Abraham, he remembers God spoke and everything that I see became. So if God says, I'm going to have a child, then I'm going to have a child. I love that. Begin your prayers with praise because it puts every single one of your problems in perspective. The God who can speak and creates just with his word. It's brilliant. And then there's this confession and it goes kind of like this. I just have picked out some of the excerpts of what happens when the mirror of God's word begins to reflect back on these people, how they had been. So check this out, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Then verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Then verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And then verse 29, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and, a, and stiffened their neck and would not obey. They're comparing themselves now. They've looked at God's greatness and God's power and his attributes, and then the mirror turns on them and the comparison's not good. You ever make comparisons? Sociologists say 
that humans, we're constantly, whether we even realize it or not, we're constantly comparing. Like we compare to ourselves. Like, is my hearing getting better or worse? Is my eyesight getting better or worse? We take a before picture and an after picture and we take a diet. Why? To compare. Hopefully things got better for us. We're always comparing. You drive a car, a car like yours pulls up next to you. What do you do? Is my car better or worse than theirs? Is mine cleaner or dirtier? More miles or less miles, right? We compare houses and kids, hair. Does he have more hair than me or less hair than me, right? We're always comparing. It's just something we do. They make this comparison and what they realize is something really amazing to me. They realize, they use the mirror of God's word and they make confession. It's real simple. We failed. We failed. They don't play the victim. They don't blame ship. Well, you know, it was... Nope. They don't deny. They don't justify. They don't say it was unfair. They didn't say, hey, we had no choice, man. They don't say any of that. What do they say? We failed. It is clear why we became POWs in Babylon, why we returned to a city in Jerusalem that has the wall broken down, the gates burned, there's human trafficking, and all kinds of crime happening. We're bad. It's our fault. They confess it's us. When you can get to that point in your life, you actually have hope to be changed. If you can't get to this point, there's no hope to be changed. Because I think change almost has this kind of, this string with it. Reconciliation requires repentance. Repentance requires confession. And confession requires truth. That's the chain. They go to God's word and they realize a truth. We're bad. We have blown it generation after generation after generation. And because they allow that truth to sit in, man, they confess and they repent and there's the hope for reconciliation. You wanna be reconciled? Have a fractured relationship? Number one truth, I sinned. In fact, my parents sinned too. In fact, I come from a long line of sinners. And now you're on the route to reconciliation. They get this, they make confession, and it's brilliant, it's good. You gotta be guilty. The mirror has to show you're gross before you can be changed. Well, Matt, this is terrible. Sometimes you gotta get terrible before you can get better. I'm in physical therapy right now. So I asked my physical therapist, is this the no pain, no gain time? He's like, "Mm, kind of, yep. If there's no pain, there's gonna be no gain. Here's the gain. The gain is this, try to see this, and this is brilliant to me. It shows something that transformed my Christianity. Notice this, the people do something and then God does something. And it goes over and over and over again in case we miss it. So look at this, verse 16 and 17. Here's what the people did. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. What do you think God should do when a people does that? Look what he does. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. 
sinful, bad, presumptuous, terrible people didn't forsake them, right? Check this one out. The people, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and had committed great blasphemies, God, you in your great mercies did not forsake them. In the wilderness, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna. Verses 26 and 27. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind them and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. And God, in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 28. But after that, they had rest. They did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And then verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn their back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and, a stiffen, and stiffened their neck and would not obey. God's response, verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. You didn't turn your back on them for you are a gracious and merciful God. Nehemiah 9 along with some other texts, reshape my view of God. That for probably three decades or more, I had a certain view of God. That if I didn't perform correctly, God was gonna forsake me and punish me. That God was just waiting like, hey, waiting for Matt to blow it. I'm gonna get him. So I cheat on my taxes, God's in heaven like, woohoo, let's see here. He's got a Rolodex of like pestilence and tragedies and punishment. He's like, what should we do? Let's see here. He gets in a car accident, breaks his leg. Nah. I could blow up his Volkswagen van. No, it's a classic. I love that thing. Mm, burn his house down. He's got insurance. He'd just get a check for it. That's not going to work. Ruptured spleen, that's it, ruptured spleen. And I would live my life waiting for God to crush me because I knew I was just like them. Sinful, blow it case. I was waiting, it's coming, it's coming. And tell Nehemiah 6 or Nehemiah 9 and these texts just started hammering me. Maybe I'd been viewing God wrong. So here's what I'm gonna try to do. And I did this on Easter about five years ago and it helped me personally kind of see these two kind of ways of seeing God. I'm not saying either are perfect, but the change helped me tremendously. And I, actually this, 
Eastern Orthodox priests use it to explain the difference between Protestant and Orthodoxy. I changed it, but stole the illustration from them. So two ways to see the gospel. First, in the beginning, there was God, the all-existing one. And God, with the word, created everything that we see. And God created an image bearer so that he could have a face-to-face love relationship with. But love demands a choice. And so the image bearer chose to eat of the forbidden fruit and to turn his back on God. And the image bearers continued to turn their back on God when Cain murders Abel and Lamech murders a man in the Tower of Babel. And God, who is holy and just, cannot have sin in his presence. So God turned his back on the image bearer. And we lived under condemnation because God is a source of life and joy. But God is not just holy and pure. God is also a father. So God becomes flesh. Jesus lives the life that we're supposed to live dies the death that we deserve. And on the cross, God pours out all of his wrath upon the son. The son absorbs it, atones for it, so that the heart of the people could be turned back to God and the heart of God could be turned back to his people. That's number one. When I understood God that way, it made God in my head, up in heaven, arms crossed, waiting to turn his back on me. But then something happened, Nehemiah and I. And this is the way I see it now. In the beginning, there was God, the all-existing one, who with a word created everything that we see. And God created an image bearer that he could have a face-to-face love relationship with. But love demands a choice. And the image bearers chose to eat of the forbidden fruit. And they turned their back on God. And they continue to turn their back on God when Cain kills Abel and Lamech murders in the Tower of Babel. But God came after his image bearer. When God came after Adam, in the garden and said, what happened to you? And God clothes Adam with a skin and makes a promise to him. Hey, no problem. The seed of the woman's coming and there's hope for you. But the image bearer turned his back again on God when Cain killed Abel. But God came after Cain and God put a mark on Cain and said, I'll protect you from yourself, Cain. But the image bearer turned his back again on God when Jacob deceives his dad steals a birthright from his brother. But God came after Jacob in Genesis 28 and appears to him in a stairway to heaven and says, I have a promise for you and I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna keep you. But the people kept turning their back on God 
over and over again. So God gave to us the law that it might guide us back to him. But we chose the golden calf and we turned our back on God. So God came after us again and gave us the promised land that we might know his bounty and his goodness. But in the promised land, we chose idols and turned our back on God. And God came after us again and sent prophets to remind us of his goodness and his generosity. But we killed the prophets. And so God sent us into Babylon that in Babylon we might have a heart to thirst for him and to know him, but in Babylon we chose not to return when he commanded us to. And so God comes and becomes a man in Jesus, demonstrating to us the heart of the Father when he hangs out with all the wrong people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drunks, front those acceptance of us, comes after us, a woman at the well who was married five times and trading sex for rent. He comes after her. A woman caught in the very act of adultery, thrown at his feet. He comes after us. A tax collector up in a tree. He comes after us time and time again. But we said, we will not have this man rule over us. Crucify him. And we crucified him. And we sinned our sins violently into Jesus. And even in that moment, what does Jesus do on the cross? He demonstrates the heart of the Father. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And he comes after us. And he pays for our sins and rises again so that our hearts would be healed. Our hearts would understand the Father. And the Father says, that's not even enough because I'm never gonna forsake you. And here's my promise. I'm gonna take of myself and I'm gonna put my spirit inside of you and it will reside in you for eternity and I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the gospel. And it's not just right there. There's a bunch of spots that show this heart of God to pursue after you and me. I've got a couple more I'll do quickly. Isaiah puts it like this. This is Isaiah 30, brilliant passage about the rebellion of God's people. Summarize real quick. Thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, you're evil and sinful. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly. Just bad. What's God's response to this? Verse 18. Therefore, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to punish you, to get you to show mercy to you. What exalts God? Isaiah 30, verse 18, to show mercy on his people. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. And Isaiah 57, like this. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and he was angry. But he went on backsliding the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace 
to the far end of the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. God's the healer. Then final one, Romans chapter nine. Those who are not my people, the backsliders, the publicans, prostitutes, the drunkards, the addicts, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there, that place that you didn't think God was at, they will be called sons of the living God. This transformed the way I see God. It transformed every part of the way I see God. And you're saying, that's just too good. Amen. Now you're getting to understand the gospel. We should say over and over of the gospel, that's just too good, right? We're bad, but God is so impossibly good. We failed, God stayed faithful. We'll say sometimes, hey man, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. Jesus chased you down. He left the 99 and came after you time and time again, just like Nehemiah chapter nine. That's what actually happened. He's the one that pursues us. He's the one that comes after us. He loved us first. That's why we love him. It's always the father coming after us, right? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. 